Hello and welcome to this week's roundtable edition of The Bunker. I'm your host, Andrew Harrison. This week, Joe Biden meets Vladimir Putin uptown. Will the face-off between the new American president and the world's premier supervillain in Geneva change the dynamic of relations between Russia and the US? Or is America still dealing with the spectre of the former guy? Plus, England expects, but so do Wales and Scotland. As we prepare to find out who's going home, they're going home, the footballers are going home, how will the national team's fortunes affect the temperature of politics back in the old country? And would everything be better if we lived in places where everything you needed was just 15 minutes away? Bring forth the magic sponge, it's this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. Our team this week is a display of globetrotting excellence, so let's meet them. First up, a former diplomat who's on postings in Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Yemen, Iraq and Afghanistan. He was once British High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago. It is, of course, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Andrew. Glad to hear it. So last week, out in the countryside, which is where you are, we saw a stunning by-election upset in Cheshire and Amersham. Uh, Liberal Democrats took the seat from the Conservatives with a swing of 25%. Um, the Liberal Democrats were pretty much wiped out in the 2019 election. Why do you think they were so successful this time? Well, I do think that even in 2019, when they had a pretty rough time at a national level, they showed that they could be very successful in seats rather like Chesham and Amersham. So don't forget, they got pretty close in Dominic Raab's seat, which is about as safe, true blue Surrey as you can get. So I think the model they've shown, which is that they can persuade um you know, remain-minded, middle-class, comfortable, sort of soft Tory voters. Uh, they've demonstrated that already. And they combine that with a very strong campaign there in Cheshire and Amersham, by all accounts, a good candidate. And, you know, the rest is history. And there's been a lot of talk about how, uh, you know, the, the the focus on the Red Wall, the um, relentless repeating of the levelling up mantras uh, has maybe somewhat backfired on the Conservatives, that uh, perhaps the old blue wall is, uh, is is now looking rather crumbly and perhaps might be being replaced by a green lawn as, as more liberal-leaning uh, people move out from cities into the you know, rural communities. What are you seeing from the, from the front line in Gloucestershire? Yeah, well, it's not often we call the front line, but I think that is correct. Obviously, one thing that's happened a lot just in the last year and a bit is loads of people thinking, hmm, do I still want to live in a large city if I don't need to for my work? Now, of course, lots of people still need to go to places of work, but not everybody. So that's one factor changing this. I think another factor changing this is the point that actually, uh, if you look at the distribution of people who are the sort of the remain voting, slightly sort of liberal end of the kind of middle class electorate. Not all of those people live in London. Some of them live in rural areas. Uh, Just around where I live in the Cotswolds, the Liberal Democrats now hold the county council. And you think of the Cotswolds as the kind of definition of conservative England. So I think you can see that happening happening in a lot of places. But on the other hand, you still have three parties vying for that vote. So it's Labour, Green, Lib Dem. And what was particularly the case in Chesham and Amersham was that they managed to focus it all on one party. Uh, Here in Gloucestershire, that hasn't really happened. So the Tories hold all the seats. But let's see what will happen at the next election. Also joining us, we have Northern California native transplanted to London and staff writer at The Atlantic, Yasmin Sahan. Hello, Yasmin. How are you? Hi there. I'm well, thank you. 
I'm glad to hear it. You've been on holiday in Scotland uh, just as the England-Scotland Euros game was happening. Uh, did this give you a, a penetrating insight into our colourful national cultures? I'm not going to lie to you, Andrew. The game itself actually gave me a severe case of boredom. Um, <laughs> I was not... Not just you. Like, yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the competition did shed some light, I think, on the scale of the England-Scotland rivalry. I was under explicit instructions by my England supporting boyfriend, not to like outwardly cheer for England, not to wear a jersey, <laughs> nothing like that. Um, two things, I mean, as, as an American looking in, I thought it was really interesting. It kind of made me wonder, and this will probably anger a lot of folks, I would imagine, like why there isn't a UK like sort of national team and and how strong <laughs> you would be if you kind of just took the best players of each um, of each one. But the other thing that kind of I was left thinking about was, um, you know, how the Scots really can celebrate just about any outcome. Um, I was, I mean, there were people like when like celebrating on the streets after, which was really lovely to see. But then I was like, but no one won. Like, what is this? <laughs> they would have done the same if they know. got beaten. I love the idea that you think there could be a UK football team. We can barely keep a country together. What makes you think we can keep a football team, which is far harder together? I was thinking that I was like I could see the like the team start like playing against each other and then just leaving the opposite opposite side just completely bemused like what's going on here. But the, mid, the midfield would just break it from the team. Um, you've been covering Israel Palestine a lot for the Atlantic, and since you were last on the podcast, Benjamin Netanyahu has indeed gone. What do you make of the new rainbow coalition of kind of far right nationalists, liberals, Arabs, the honourable order of no Netanyahu's? <laughs> I, I mean, the coalition itself is, is you know, historic and, and a big deal. I mean, they did what what no one thought could be done, which was oust King Bibi, despite the fact that he appears completely unwilling to leave his prime ministerial prime ministerial palace. Um, you know, th that's a huge feat and, and that deserves credit. But I think at the same time, a lot of people are now watching this coalition to see, you know, can they stay together long enough to, to do anything significant? And, and and more importantly, I think the fact that no one's really expecting massive changes uh, from this government, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. I mean, just to bring up a recent news story, there was the headlines that, that many have probably seen about Israel um, agreeing to send uh, more than a million Pfizer doses to, to the West Bank um, in exchange for the Palestinians giving Israel the doses that they're expecting from Pfizer later this year. Um, ultimately, that deal fell apart because um, the doses are set to expire this month. So a lot good that would have done. So, you know, plus a change. I, I think it's mm. just the case where it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm really intrigued to see what an MK Netanyahu looks like in, in the opposition. Mm. As it's a big week for the US and Russia, our special guest is Luke Harding, the Guardian's foreign correspondent, formerly their man in Moscow until he was deported in 2011. It was probably over nothing. And author of the brilliant book, Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem and Russia's Remaking of the West. He's also reported from Delhi, Berlin and covered wars in Iraq, Afghanistan and Libya. And we're thrilled to welcome him back. Hello, Luke. How are you doing? Hi, Andrew. Uh, yeah, really good. Good good to be with you again. Have you visited any nice historic spires lately since unlocking started? Well, I, I think that joke is an appalling and, and sick taste, Andrew, I suggest you you go and repent in a, in a quiet corner somewhere. Exactly. That's what, that's what we have this podcast for. So we're going to be talking a lot about the uh, Biden-Putin summit later, but you've just had a bit of a victory in your coverage of Boris Johnson's strange attachment to Evgeny Lebedev, haven't you? The owner of the Evening Standard. The, the Cabinet Office, I believe, rejected a freedom of uh, information request that you made about Lebedev's visit to Johnson's flat in March 2020. And now the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee is going to launch its own inquiry. What's going on there? What's happening? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I can singly, single-handedly claim credit for this, but but the the topic of um, Boris Johnson's relationship with Yevgeny Lebedev, or or actually Lord Lebedev of <laughs> Hampton and Siberia and the Russian Federation, as we should now <laughs> call him, um, is strange and surreal um, and just 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 truly truly unexplained. I I, I would say. I mean, basically, Yevgeny um, is the editor in chief of the Evening Standard, bought <clears throat> with his father's Moscow money. Alexander, former KGB guy, whom I know well, um, they've been friends for over a decade. And 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 Johnson has this habit of going to his parties, um, including once in Italy without his security detail, um, and the day after he won the general election in twenty nineteen. And so. I mean, it's 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 a very curious um, affair, and so I've been trying to kind of get to the bottom of it. Uh, I've written about these parties, um, about um, the drugs involved. Um, this this is not an allegation; it's true. We've 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 published this, um, and so on. And no one quite understands why Evgeny got a peerage. So I discovered that Evgeny had been to see Boris Johnson um, in Downing Street. Um, three days after the virus was sweeping through um, the UK and London in particular in March of last year. And I just politely asked the cabinet office if they could tell me what the visit was about and share any WhatsApp messages. <laughs> and, and basically, I got a kind of, I got a kind of sort of highfalutin bureaucratic piss off. Um, we're not going to deal with you kind of oiky troublemakers. Um, and um, couched on on the grounds of kind of cost, and and what what's interesting is that Open Democracy have actually been challenging the Cabinet Office's extreme reluctance to give any information under Freedom of Information, um, and have written about what they call a kind of black ops unit that essentially blacklists journalists. I, I don't know if Yasmin is on the on on the blacklist, but I well, appear we'll to be, all on, be it. on it now. Yes. You're, well, you're you're doomed, Andrew, and 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 just just. <laughs> Tell tell some official to kind of shred our requests and put them in a big bin. How expensive can it be to do screenshots of WhatsApp messages? They should just ring up Dom. He knows how to do it. Well, yeah, I mean, we, uh, but but you know, I was sort of hoping that that Dom Dominic Cummings, as you as you so affectionately call him, would, would leak us some of this stuff. But no one has. Um, and there are big unanswered questions about, for example, Johnson's flat renovations, which were uh, he he was basically passing around the the the, the bucket um, in in spring of last year, asking for donations at the same time he was quietly and secretly meeting with Yevgeny Lebedev. Now, I don't know if renovations came up. But I don't know because Downing Street won't say. So what is a God-fearing investigative journalist supposed to do in our dark times to get answers? Um, I, I don't know. But if anyone has an answer and they want to leak it to me, then I'm very easy to find. Yeah, just send us a tweet. I just want to say, in the interest of, of, of fact-checking, Andrew, Dom Cummings, unfortunately, does not know how to take a screenshot. I think what we saw was a photograph of an iPad. Which yes, is, it was, wasn't I it? Just, that stood out so much. I was like, oh, God, like, why is it that someone who was in government doesn't know how to take just the most basic screenshot? So anyway, but, but especially yeah, he'll, a, he'll get there. He'll get there. Especially a man with a two-story brain like Dom. He was like, it's easy. It's just like the on button and the home screen button. It's really easy. Very simple. We should bill him for consultancy. Now, it's been a momentous few days in the geopolitical world. Is there any other kind of world? First, the G7 summit in Cornwall, then NATO leaders convening in Brussels, and then Geneva hosting that historic meeting between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. It wasn't the first time the two had met. Uh, then Vice President Biden met uh, then Prime Minister Putin in 2011. Well, this was the first time they conversed as leaders of the respective countries. Um, Luke, after the kind of unpredictable years of Trump, 
and we all remember the the disastrous Helsinki summit in 2018. How how did this meeting compare? What should we take away from it? Well, it, it was it was really astonishing just to see a um, cogent American president who was was not enthralled to to Vladimir Putin, the KGB guy. I mean, I, I, it, you mentioned shadow state at the beginning. I write a whole chapter about what happened in 2018 in Helsinki, where where Donald Trump essentially sucked up to Vladimir Putin before the world, um, mm. uh, disputed the assessment of all of his spy agencies that Russia had interfered in the 2016 presidential election, uh, and. Uh, was just it was just a humiliating and embarrassing and painful spectacle and then you have this meeting in geneva which is essentially conventional diplomacy you have a handshake you have smiles you have a rather chaotic uh, bundle inside a library um and and essentially you have 3 hours of of talks um separate press conferences putin doing his classic um, what aboutism act where yes. you ask him about human rights and he immediately goes on about the war in Iraq, you know, Tony Blair's haircut, perfidious <laughs> things Americans have done over the centuries um, and so on, mm. just off on a riff. But we had sort of Biden essentially saying, look, um, I had to meet him. It was in America's self-interest. I don't trust the guy, but let's let's see. Um, and that that's a kind of reasonable opening strategy. The, the problem is that, of course, what Putin will do is what he's always done, which is to continue meddling, interfering, cyber hacking, occasionally murdering um, his enemies um, at home and abroad. And he will just wait to see whether the US reacts. And so so when the next hack comes, and I, I confidently predict on your wonderful bunker podcast that there will be one, another one in three mm. months, six months, seven months, then we have to see whether Biden actually retaliates. Because I think I think where we are geopolitically to sort of get serious is is containment. Is is actually no one quite knows how to handle, deal with this kind of rogue regime that 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 practices diversionary tactics and re- really thinks it's at war with the Western world, of US in particular, but also the UK. Um, and so there, have to, there has to be a response involving hard measures and there has to be a response involving the money of Putin and his friends, who are all kind of billionaires, who love the West, who have their kids here, um, who like the UK, London, Paris, New York, and so on. Um, and by disinviting them to the sort of the party, the global party, I think is a good way of causing pain. Mm. Um, I was hearing on the slate political gab first, which we are huge admirers of. That um, the kind of the, the, the received wisdom was, well, Putin doesn't want another Cold War, and what they were saying was that's exactly what he wants. In fact, he loves it. In fact, he started it. That, that's where we are. I mean, Ed Lucas wrote a book called The New Cold War over a decade ago. I mean, we've been really in, I would say, in a kind of um, Cold War or a neo Cold War situation since um, the war in Georgia in two thousand and eight, which is a story I, I covered for the Guardian. You know, we, we've seen. Uh, Russia, uh, the Russian Federation, chew off a chunk of Eastern Europe in the shape of Crimea in 2014 and foment a war and send assassins to Salisbury, as you, as you mentioned, and earlier previously to London to, to kill Alexander Litvinenko. Now, th- th- this is about as martial as it gets, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, sending tanks across borders, sending killers into Western capitals, cyber hacking data to influence an American election and to install a stooge in the in, in the shape of Donald J. Trump, a, a, about whom actually um, Arthur knows a thing or two. Mm. Um, so, so I, I mean, basically, Putin really does believe he's involved in a quasi war with the democracies of, of of Europe and America, and and the really the question is what we're going to do about it. A lot of the kind of parallel briefings that came out after the summit were, were um, American 
sources saying that in the in the private session, Biden had more or less put Putin on on notice that said, you know, we're not going to be messing around anymore. We'll be paying attention, and there will be costs to action. Is that plausible? Does that stand up for you? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he was quite pragmatic about it, and and actually, Biden is. Um, is a charming guy. I mean, I don't actually think charm works on Putin per se, but he, he's he's vastly experienced in foreign affairs. I mean, he you know he he's been chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee um, for, for 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 decades. I mean, he 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 was meeting Soviet foreign ministers back in the nineteen seventies, so he's been around the block. And actually, his route map, so far as it goes, is is not unreasonable. The thing is, I don't think Putin is going to modulate his his behavior because. It, it, it's sort of intrinsic. I mean, he has a KGB view of the world, which is adversarial, xenophobic. He, he likes the flattery of being invited to G- Geneva because it, he can he can present himself at home as a co-equal to Joe Biden, the two great statesmen of our time, kind of bestriding the world. Even though actually Russia isn't a superpower anymore, it's a, it's a kind of medium-sized regional power. Um, but 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 it, it's one that is prepared to break any rule. Uh, mm. To its advantage, um, and and cause mayhem when it suits. Yes, I mean, I mean, relations are in a, a pretty poor state. Even Biden said that relations are at a low point at, at the summit, um, and he's you know we've we've seen attempts at resets and sort of hands across the ocean in the past. Hillary Clinton's embarrassing big red mm. button. Um, do, do you think lessons have been learned by the Democrats from that? How, how do you think Biden's going to be approaching this? I got the impression, and I think Luke kind of mentioned this as well, that you know. I don't think Biden has has made these grand promises. Um, I I think unlike previous administrations, he isn't promising a great reset or, you know, the resumption of of a really strong relationship with Russia. And, you know, I think we saw that even with his his kind of terse interaction Mm. with a journalist at the summit. Um, She had asked, uh, this one journalist had asked the president, you know, why are you so confident that Putin or the Kremlin are going to change their minds? And and Biden, and he did apologize for this, but kind of, you know, lost his cool and said, well, who said I'm confident like I'm not confident um and and you know I think that was he's I think his exact quote was I'm not confident in anything which was um I think quite telling of of his approach to this meeting but but also maybe perhaps even just you know his his belief that the U.S. is really going to 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 force Russia on a lot of the issues that are obviously really central to Biden's foreign policy. I mean, he's centered his foreign policy and human rights. There are a litany of human rights abuses in Russia. I mean, you know, not least issues like, you know, Alexei Navalny and and sort of his his treatment in prison, uh, press freedom and the Kremlin's ongoing attacks against Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which is a broadcaster that is funded, but it is editorially independent of the US, uh, you know, the situation in Belarus and many, many more. Mm. But I, I'm not confident. Needless okay. to say, <laughs> how has this this kind of uh, its initial set of foreign trips for Biden was has been touted as vindicating his claim that the US is back on the world stage? How's it gone down at home? I mean, I know you're not there right now, but you probably talk to quite a lot of Americans, don't you? I, I, on occasion, yeah, my mom um, mostly. Mm. But um, but yeah, I mean, what does your mom think? Well, Ruba says. I mean, to be honest, I was going to say, you know, I tried to find polling on this to to kind of see and. I, Tellingly, I couldn't really find any. So either I'm not looking in the right places or that really says something about kind of, you know, how the U.S. sort of sees this. And I think what was what struck me or or my sort of logic for why I couldn't find anything was that, you know, when Trump would go abroad, it was a spectacle. I mean, these trips were laid in with faux pas and gaffes and shocking statements of the kind that we saw in Helsinki a couple of years ago. 
Biden's trip was, you know, decidedly tame, dare I say, even boring. I mean, you know, I feel like the press was kind of grasping at straws to make it interesting, talking about the body language between the two leaders, how Biden had gifted Putin a pair of aviators. But, you know, this was kind of, you know, (laughs) status quo, sort of boring American president going to meet another world leader. So in that sense, I, I actually don't know um, how how Americans saw I, I I probably guess that for Americans who were quite embarrassed by the previous administration's representation of the U.S. in the world stage, this was probably you know kind of a breath of fresh air, a return to something resembling normalcy. Um, I'm more interested, honestly, in, in, you know, how how our allies saw the, you know, whether they have any hope in hell that when Biden says America's back, that America actually is back. And, you know, for how long? Yeah. Well, it was a, a really surprising YouGov economist poll came out last week that saying that among Republicans, Putin has a higher approval rating than Biden. 18% of them have a favorable review of Putin compared to 14% for Biden. How much of this is is kind of residual, stop the steal, we hate Joe Biden, and how much of it is effectively admiring uh, a, a hardline autocratic populist like the former guy? I think they're related, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I, I reckon it's probably more of the former than it is the latter. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think this is really indicative of just how big the divisions are and how difficult Biden's task of, you know, trying to heal those divisions is going to be when, you know, hmm. when when some of those exact people you're trying to reach see Vladimir Putin as a more favorable leader than you. Um you know, that's a hard starting point. But Yasmin, it's also it seems to me it's 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 a sort of testament to how how effective propaganda has become. And one of the things that I noticed with with mm. horror, um, you know, during the Trump years is is quite quite often how a kind of Russian propaganda meme would would enter the president's brain. He would repeat it. It would then pop up on Fox News on Hannity, uh, and then trickle down to the base. There was this kind of this this kind of malign symbiosis, uh, um, mm. uh, and and it's clearly it's clearly sunk in. I mean, the fact that Putin, who you remember, you remember jo- John McCain, God bless him, described him as a sort of cold eyed KGB killer, which used to be the Republican view that that Putin yeah. is now this venerated figure because he was Donald Trump's buddy. I mean, it, it's an astonishing journey that we've traveled that that. To be honest, out fiction's fiction. I mean, who would have predicted we'd, we'd be in this mess and post mess seven or eight years ago? I mean, me, me for sure not. But I mean, I, I do think. I mean, you're right. Biden was a little bit boring, but it, it's such a relief yes. after the the exhaustion oh, yeah. and, and the night sweats and fever <laughs> of, of of being in this kind of Trump maniac world, you know, for so long. I love boring. Well, ideally. D- Ideally, diplomacy would be boring. No, but I mean, I, I agree with you, of course. And actually, now that you mentioned those memes, I mean, I think back to how, you know, obviously you have those images of Putin on horseback and Putin, I don't know, wrestling a bear or something. <laughs> um, I Thinking back to like how often it was a similar Trump memes that would go around that would just really work with his base. It was often be him like photoshopped onto like a boxer or something. Yeah. I think there is that sort of strongman appeal that also plays into this. But as Luke rightly notes, I mean, this is just, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of a, a new world that, that we're living in. Um, but but it, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, I don't want to sort of push this too far, but to some extent it, it is the Putinization of America. The fact that, I mean, you know, Trump is, is, is more responsible for this than anybody, but with, with Putin sort of pushing along, but, but the fact that actually it's not about facts or, or alliances or concrete foreign policy achievements. It's, as you say, it's all about, it's, 
all about memes and, and above all it's about spectacle i mean mm. T- timothy mm. snyder is very good on this the the, the, the the sort of the kind of mussolinian uh a- aspect to it that you just do show 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 and actually it's quite nice n- to take a break from the show and and just to do, you know, a bit of BBC Four with Joe Biden instead. Yeah. Well, actually, we've we've just for the past fifteen minutes participated entirely in that because we've been talking about Russia, and in fact, the main problem for Biden, from uh, you, you could strongly argue, is China, where most of the uh, attention at the G seven and NATO summits was concentrated. Arthur, are we thinking too much about Vladimir Putin and his naked horseback rides, and not enough about Biden and Xi? Um, well, you might be, Andrew. <laughs> it's an image you can't get out of your head, really. But um, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, China represents the medium and long term challenge for America. And, you know, depending on where you sit, you can take this sort of concept of, of a sort of uh, inevitable superpower conflict that exists when one new superpower rises up and another one is in decline. Or even if you don't take such a negative view, it is absolutely clear that rising China uh, can't accommodate America's current worldview, including an independent Taiwan, including you know right of navigation in the South China Sea, and so on. So, so th- th- those things are all there, but they're not the immediate sort of nightmare of of Putin's assassins and the hacks and all the rest of it, which which are kind of more viscerally uh, annoying to people, I guess. Mm. And the G seven. Failed to agree on an aid package to come up, you know, as, as an, an offer to come up against uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, this massive overseas investment. Um, some of the European nations were very reluctant to join in America's critique of China. What, why do you think that is? Again, are we just dealing with the the, the scattering of the West in in the uh, in the wake of the former guy? Well, it's partly that, but actually, you know, some some European nations are are engaged in the Belt and Road, including Italy. Um, and so, uh, you know, not everybody um, is completely sold on the idea that America is back. I mean, the thing, Biden's challenge, I think, you know, no, nobody doubts or no sensible person doubts Biden's integrity. But uh, his challenge is that, you know, he, he's a term limited president facing a political party on the other side that has shown it will do literally anything, including violent insurrection, to gain power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and led by somebody who, by all accounts, is hanging around. And so the idea that we can just reset the nightmare of the Trump years and go back to the old days uh, is is no longer an option available to us. Yeah, it's like Basil Fawlty staggering into the room and saying, oh, my God, what a terrible dream. (laughs) It's not going to happen, is it? Uh, Over over the weekend, uh, one thing that emerged was that one of China's top spies, Dong Jingwei, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, defected to the United States as if it was the 60s or something, the highest ranking official to switch sides between China, China and America. As somebody with a with a toehold in this world, Arthur, what, what, what are you taking from this? Well, the first thing I would take is I think it's not yet clear exactly what's happened, but certainly mm-hmm. if he has defected, it's a very big deal. He's a really senior guy uh, responsible for counter-espionage, so for responsible for you know, hunting out any spies inside China. Uh, and it would be a huge deal. And of course, there, there's all kinds of questions, not the least of which is around the whole origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. I, obviously, this particular officer may not know the exact uh, details of that, but he's probably very likely to know what China decided to do right at the beginning at the end of 2019, how they decided to cover it up, what steps they took. So if that sort of information started to come out, 
I think it would put a lot more pressure on Xi and on China's sort of wider handling of the epidemic. Luke, just before we wrap this bit up and move on, China and Russia, I mean, at his meeting with Putin, Biden says he thinks Russia is in a very difficult spot right now because you know, squeeze between China and the West. Um, you know, they desperately want to remain a major power, but as you just described, they're kind of a, ri- a rickety structure, not really a superpower anymore. What is the relationship between Russia and China like? Yeah, I mean, Andrew, that's a really interesting question. And I think this was probably the, the subtlest part of, of Joe Biden's pitch to Vladimir Putin. I mean, China and Russia actually um, fought a war um, in uh, the end of the 1960s over an island in the Amur River. Um, latterly, they've had they've had good relations trade um uh they've done military exercises they're both fellow authoritarian powers that really are opposed to the kind of the west rights based agenda if if you like but having said all that there's a kind of fear almost an atavistic fear on the russian side of chinese encroachment uh in the far east of russia i mean russia is a huge country i remember, I remember flying from moscow to to kamchatka on the world's longest internal flight i was in the same country after 12 hours in a plane <laughs> um and that whole region on the russian side is very sparsely populated on the chinese side is teeming with people um and already a lot of logging industries mining and so on is being bought up by chinese interests and so while it it looks like the kind of perfect friendship, I, I do think there's a kind of unease on the Russian side about about China's dominance. And I think the sort of strategic pitch, if you like, from Biden is, you know, improve relations with us because, you know, we are we are the enemy of China. And in the long term, this will work to your advantage. I mean, w- w- whether, whether this pitch succeeds or not, I don't know, but it's quite an interesting pitch. So much fun to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, as we mentioned earlier, the UK remains in the grip of Euros mania, with England, Scotland and Wales all still in the tournament for the next few days at least. England and Wales have qualified for the next rounds already, and Scotland will find out tonight, Tuesday, in their game against Croatia. So why does footballing success do so much to determine the national mood, not just in the UK, but around the world? Arthur, as an outsider to football, you have in the past registered bafflement that people say we won or we lost or we are world champions. Are you are you immune to national identification like this, even in cricket? Uh, or no, rugby? of course not. I, I I don't want to be caricatured as some sort of absurd elitist that I can't <laughs> enjoy, this football. enjoy a little bit of footy now and then. But I, I'm 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 I can't pretend I'm completely hooked on it mm. but you but you get why people are so moved by it i mean you, you're you're a well-traveled man football grips the entire world apart from the united states which we'll talk about in a minute it's, <laughs> it's like this is something that matters to every kind of country in the world oh definitely and and it's it's certainly you know it's and i will say this advisedly is britain's last sort of soft power triumph that as a british person you can go anywhere in the world outside north america and have an in-depth conversation <laughs> with anybody about football and you know in in obscure places people will have uh, you know detailed opinions on on any number of of of, of premier uh, teams in in England and and players and so on so yeah i mean it's 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 an amazing thing in it also i think reflects quite a lot of the national character in the way that the game is so commercialized in our country and reflects sort of the weird kind of uh, financialization of everything else in england I mean, Arthur's completely right, but it does have a kind of it can have a transformational effect on the way a nation is viewed. I mean, I, I was mm. in uh, I was in Berlin for the Guardian in two thousand and six when Germany hosted the World Cup, and it was a, it was it was extraordinary to to watch because ahead of the tournament, um, 
that all of the tabloids were sort of doing German Second World War cliches, running unflattering photos of Angela Merkel by a swimming pool with headlines like, I'm big in the Bundestag. <laughs> um, uh, and and then the tournament happened. And first of all, the, the Germans did really well and were sort of, you know, doing flags and the kind of ghosts of World War II and Nazism were, were finally exercised. But also a load of... Um, uh, England fans came over and realized what a fantastic country Germany was and that the, the press coverage completely flipped. I mean, it was the mm. moment that those tabloid cliches died. Everyone had a great tournament. The, the, the papers were writing about how attractive German women were and, <laughs> and you know, how the beer was great. And, <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I mean, Arthur's right. It is a kind of soft power thing, but when it goes well, it, it can conjure up a kind of magic. Actually, um, and I don't know what the magical moment will be this time, but I'm hoping there will there will be one, and it won't just be the usual kind of gloom and rancor. Well, the, the surprise to me is how quickly um, the, the 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 UK side slot into their allotted roles. So with England, it's always big ballyhoo beforehand, followed by disappointment, and then the fans kind of behave like customers. They say, "Oh, you're all overpaid, and I didn't pay for this." Whereas the Scots, it's all about heroic and tragic failure, and you know that which sort of feeds a national narrative that they're always having their destiny stolen away from them. Emails to the usual Twitter, um, <laughs> and you know this. And I, I feel I can say this. I've got Scottish and Welsh in me as well. I'm okay to say this. And, and for the Welsh, it, it is kind of uh, you know almost you know it's sort of die with your boots on national courage type of thing, which actually is working out because they're the first to qualify for the next round. So we all fall into our allotted roles, and it sort of looks to me like. Maybe the fault's not in the football, it's actually in the English. You know, the Welsh and the Scots get to have fun with their mates, enjoy harmless patriotism and clear up the rubbish when they go home. And the kind of English have this sort of, you know, uh, sort of vaguely sour self-doubt, or some of them do, not all of them. You know, many of the fans are like that. I don't know, do do you recognise that, Arthur, at all? Well, I think, I mean, you know, I'm not the expert on the football, but England goes into every tournament thinking it is in some way a potential winner of that tournament. And you have Mm. to be very old to remember us winning a tournament, right? Whereas Mm. Wales and Scotland go in as plucky outsiders and everyone loves a plucky outsider, however well or badly they do. So I guess that's the basic thing that, you know, we have a overinflated view of our own potential, which sounds familiar from one or two other walks of life. And, 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 and the, 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 the Germans are always kind of very downbeat. You know, they've got this kind of Nietzschean um, sort of uh, <laughs> sense that it's not going to work out. And then, of course, as always, they just win with great technical and clinical efficiency and flatten everybody else. I mean, yeah. which also goes with your kind of national cliche uh, thesis, yeah. Andrew, which I expect to see in book form fairly soon. Well, slimmer, slimmer volumes have been written and maybe may yet be written by me. Arthur, isn't it quite good that we've got these national symbols that we can kind of overload with meaning, though? Isn't it good that we've got arena where things like you know black lives matter can be talked about even if it means exposing the ugly side of of some fans that actually this is the kind of crucible of opinion yeah i guess so i mean i certainly you'd rather it was in in sport than you know on a field of battle literally um i think though that there is something a bit dark about the way football um you know both fifa and uefa involve some pretty sinister people um mm. and then the way that for example the government can turn the thing about you know kneeling in respect which had nothing to do with Black Lives Matter at the beginning. It had to do with a gesture taken by a particular athlete in America. Um, and then peop- and then it's, you know, turned into this sort of ghastly culture war thing. So, yeah, of course, I'd much rather it happened in a sport arena than in in something that, you know, ha- can cause a lot more damage. But it, it seems to me that that, um, that there, is, there is a sort of dark side to this, and I think particularly in football because so much money sloshes around it. 
Yasmin, Americans love all their national teams and live through sport. You've got a. You even got excited about soccer when Tim Howard was Secretary of Defense in 2014. Like, thank you for calling it soccer. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to. I'm reaching out. I'm reaching across the ocean here. You know, the United States uh, press celebrated um, a defeat because of Tim Howard's fantastic performance. Do, do, do Americans have a more healthy attitude to their national teams than maybe maybe England does? You seem to love the patriotism. It kind of you know completely guilelessly without any sort of um, ill will towards anyone else, and almost the, the sport is almost incidental. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's been established on this podcast that I am not a sporty person, so <laughs> everything I'm about to say comes with you know a big asterisk and a hefty pinch of salt. But um, but yeah, I mean, growing up, I you know when I think about sport and and I tended to think of it more in terms of teams than kind of the national sports like the Olympic or the World Cup because you know frankly our our men's team isn't very good at football I'll get to the women's in a minute but um mm. you know we I think it's always just been a very team focused thing and you know th- those are regional those are city wide but I mean you know it, I feel like there was a lot of loyalty to that. Um, So, you know, when I thought about sport, I never really thought of it as like an American thing as such. So in that respect, it feels a lot less um, existential almost in a way. (laughs) There's not a lot of identity writing on your, on your relationship to sport. That said, um, I, I think I've never felt more, patriotic in a sporting sense than when the u.s women's uh soccer slash football team uh was in the semifinals mm. against against uh the the english uh, women's team i mean that was just phenomenal um mm. and that you know so so there's there is a i, I guess you know I could see that being a thing if we were any good on the on the international stage, and they're an example of us being very good. Um, but but yeah, I just think it matters less in a weird way. Mm. And again, I'm a non sporty person saying that, so so I could be wrong. But it feels much bigger and heavier here. Well, you're going to have to become a sporty person because you are co-hosting the World Cup in 2026 with Canada and Mexico. Yes. Um, <laughs> So that's going to be fun. Are you looking forward to term two Trump having to go to Mexico and and, and make nice, as they say? Too soon, Andrew. It's too soon. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, Russia have been pretty mixed in the tournament. They got hammered by Belgium, but they beat Finland, which is a bit of a grudge match considering the political history between the two. Um, where does this stand in Putin's narrative of, of, of strong Russia as a kind of, you know, this, this thing that intimidates the rest of the world? Well, I mean, f- football is is tre- tremendously important. Um, you, you'll recall that that uh, uh, a little known um, oligarch called uh, Roman Abramovich um, yeah. paid the wages of the, of the, the the Russian team for quite quite a long time, and they've actually spent kind of huge amounts on on the game, and of course hosted the World Cup in in uh, twenty eighteen. And there, there clearly is a political dimension to this. I mean, what what we haven't mentioned is that Ukraine mm. uh, wore a uh, well, are wearing a, um, a, a national team strip, which has got a map of Ukraine, including Crimea. Yes. Um, and UEFA kind of, you know, wibble wobbled about that and then let it pass. Um, and I think it's been it's been rooted so that it's very unlikely that Ukraine and Russia Russia meet. But I think that that game will be extremely um, fraught. The, the problem is that sort of <laughs> Russian football is not. It, it's it, you're right. I mean, it's not actually in great shape, and I, I don't think Russia will go very far. Uh, I, I mean. I don't want someone to sound too cynical, but but you know Putin is very good at bribing politicians, uh, small countries, um, in, industrialists, and so on. But actually, on the sports pitch, there's 
the, the options for cheating are relatively limited. But there's also a, a way to feed into the kind of, you know, the international millwall, no one likes us and we don't care thing. You know, you get you do get beaten, but you can just, you know, say that, uh, you know, you, you went out there and did it on your own terms and the rest of the world doesn't matter at all anyway. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess I'm kind of jaundiced because one of the stories I was working on um, in um, 2011 when I was kicked out of Russia was... I was told that Russia had bought the World Cup, you know, that they bribed FIFA, FIFA executive delegates um, and um, had run a, you know, really kind of comprehensive espionage operation. And I, I was deep into that investigation when I was, you know, my visa was cancelled and I was pinged out of the country. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's a very impo- very hard to sort of separate, you know, Russia on the pitch from from the Russian yeah. government off the pitch. But it's fair to say that they, the Kremlin really want Russia to do well, but I just don't see it this summer. Time for another one of our periodic wild ideas. COVID has restricted everybody's movements, confining us to our local surroundings, mostly, unless you're going to Bernard Castle for an eye test. But for many, this has accelerated an already existing movement towards what they're calling the 15-minute city, where everything you want is only 15 minutes away, hence the name. Here's someone who could tell us why this is a good idea and why it's picking up speed from Paris to Ipswich. So my name is Paul Swinney and I'm Director of Policy and Research at the think tank Centre for Cities. A wild idea that's quite popular at the moment for cities is the idea of the 15-minute city, which basically means that people can walk or cycle to everything that they need within 15 minutes. People argue for the idea of a 15-minute city because... I think it cuts down in terms of emissions that you're not traveling around, but also it brings what people feel probably a sense of community of having everything on your doorstep. It's very convenient, but actually so you're working and living within a community rather than traveling over a longer distance. And so this idea, I think, appeals to a number of different uh, people. And indeed, it's getting quite a lot of traction in Paris at the moment in particular, where the mayor there is very keen on creating 15-minute pockets within Paris so people are very much living in, and working and spending leisure time in sort of the place where they live. Well, the idea is that you'll have all of those amenities in one place. So amenities such as doctors, restaurants, shops, and even your office as well. I think for some of those things, doctors, restaurants, etc., I think that is is fairly possible. What we'd have to do to get towards that is we'd probably have to see all of our cities in the UK very much looking like the centre of London currently does. Now, if you were to say, look at a suburb of London or, or inner London at random, Stoke Newington, what we see is that there's a lot of people living in a very, very small area. It's a very dense area. But because you've got that strong concentration of people all in one area, all of a sudden you do see these amenities popping up. So you do have your coffee shops, you do have your restaurants, you do have your bars all in one place because the private entrepreneur goes, do you know what? If I set up my enterprise there, I'm going to turn a profit. And and so they do. But if you were to say, look at, I think a lot of cities across the UK where we've been building quite low density housing estates, particularly on the edge of town, you see that you don't have those sorts of things on the estate. You might get a shop on the estate, which is quite general, but you'll not get a restaurant, you'll not get a bar or things like this because there just isn't that that number of people all within one place to be able to support that type of amenity. And so what we'd have to see elsewhere in the country is much more dense development, um, particularly within inner cities. And that means building apartments. It means building buildings that are four, five, six stories tall, rather than some of these very low density, semi-detached or detached housing estates on the edge of town. I think the idea, though, that we will be able to have your office or your job within walking distance, I think is a little bit more challenging, probably, than the idea of having a a restaurant or a a bar or something like that. 
and particularly for office jobs that are quite high skilled, you know, we've seen those jobs cluster within city centres over the last 20 or 30 years. And the reason for that is because, you know, being to have face-to-face interaction with lots of different people is really, really important. And so that's why people have travelled into those city centres. And we think that will continue post-COVID. Now, for an employer, you know, I think it's in those, an office location in the centre of town is important too because it widens the number of people you can potentially employ because it's much easier for people to get into the centre of town, say, rather than sort of cross town or, or only be able to sort of employ people from within a 15-minute cycle ride. Not very much limits the number of people you might be able to employ, you know, that, that pool of potential workers. And so for that reason, I think the 15-minute city idea starts to fall down, which I think even post-COVID, what we will see is a lot of people still commuting into the centre of town because a lot of businesses still only based in the centre of town. And so we will still see that longer daily commute. That's still going to be an element of, of daily life, for, particularly for people that working in higher skilled service-based industries. Yasmin, you're from San Francisco where, well, in parts of it, you have to drive for everything. Was, was London a surprise as a walkable city? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, my first introduction to like a truly walkable city was Washington, D.C. But definitely, I mean, mm. once I lived there for a year, the appeal of living in a place where you could get just about anywhere without a car, despite the fact that I can, you know, I, I could drive at the time and, and haven't touched a car since, um, you know, that was that was a massive appeal. So um and it's actually funny. I know Stoke Newington was mentioned in, in the recording, which is actually where I live. Yes. I live nearby. Um, and, and I can attest to the appeal of just having things like stores and, you know, dentist's office and restaurants and bars kind of just, you know, right there. Um, well, I mean, London is famously a kind of an accretion of villages. So it was like it was like that anyway. It's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, can you make, for instance, Birmingham into that? Can you make Manchester into that? Can you know, New York is already like that, but can you make Los Angeles into that? I don't, you know, it seems, it seems a worthy goal, but it's such a stretch. I can't see a lot. I mean, having lived in Los Angeles, I can't see, I mean, that would just require so much work just because some, I mean, mm. I think it's the way a lot of cities are designed, right, as well. Um, you know, London, as you rightly know, is kind of a bunch of little villages, but also, you know, public transport is just, you know, really great. So like feasibly you could, I mean, I think it was like walking or cycling or whatever. I mean, it's just, yeah, everything feels really close. Whereas in, in California, I mean, everything is just so spread out and every, like all those resources are concentrated in like strip malls <laughs> along, yeah. along the highway. So, um, it's a phenomenal idea. And as someone who already benefits from that kind of living anyway. I think it's really great. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest reasons I'd be quite hesitant to move away from a city anytime soon. It's just that I hate the idea of having to get a car and, you know, drive around. Arthur, as a man in the countryside, uh, you know, can, where people move to get away from cities, is this a way of making cities feel like not cities, making them feel like villages? Well, it sounds like um, it's <laughs> it's sort of trying to turn a city into what already exists, which is like a normal-sized town. And mm. I, I am at, at risk of sounding like some sort of countryside bore. Uh, it, <laughs> if you just if you just live in a place which which is a sensible size size for a single group of people, you have most of the stuff you need in quite a small area. Mm. And and in a way, what makes London, to my mind, quite difficult to live in is just it's so it's like as you said, it's a hundred cities all you know uh, constituted into one. Um, so I, I maybe I'm missing a bit of magic here, but it seems to me that this idea is really just um, is is a basic idea which has existed forever, which is go and live in a smallish town that has all you need. 
But what if you want sushi at four o'clock in the morning and you can't get it in Stroud? You probably can get it in Stroud. Well, I don't know about four a.m. Uh, you, you got me mm. there. Then, yeah, then, <laughs> then I then I sort of acknowledge the um, utter provincialism of my existence. Luke, are you up for living in the fifteen-minute city? Yeah, I mean, I, I live in a, a small, uh, smallish, pretty boring uh, town halfway between London and Cambridge, and was sort of com- commuting in like a Japanese wage slave until COVID <laughs> struck. And um, uh, March of last year was on a train full of coughing people, and and went down a few days later with COVID myself, which took me a couple of months, painful months, to sort of shake off. And so I, I, I've been thinking about where to live. Uh, I have this endless conversation with my wife we haven't made any sort of decisions um at all i mean i I quite like writing my books writing my articles from my boring town and not having an option of getting sushi at four in the morning (laughs) but i also like i also like the buzz of the big city basically what i need andrew is for someone to commission a biography it can be of a despot or a kleptocrat and to pay me about a million and a half pounds and then i can solve this existential problem by just buying a very nice house in two places that that that's my fancy scenario for now at least i'm sure that'll work for absolutely all of the listeners <laughs> let's go back to russia because it's not just about the putin biden summit and of course because we've got luke here um luke you know putin's main problem at the beginning of the year was alexei navalny and his opposition movement and uh, navalny was very quickly uh, imprisoned what's what, what are the latest developments there i mean P- putin has been stonewalling on this and insisting that navalny intended to be arrested and imprisoned um w- w- andrew when you say navalny actually what what you mean what you meant to say was that person that gentleman um <laughs> or th- that 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 entity to which i you know kind of volder navalny basically i mean um I, You'll note at the Geneva summit last week that Putin once again refused to say Navalny's name, uh, that he said that essentially he um, was guilty of various crimes um, and it was his own fault that he's in jail because he flew back from Germany having been poisoned. So, no, I mean, I mean it's been an astonishing year. I mean, I, I, I've, I've, my, my, my book, um, Shadow State, I updated it with a new chapter on Alexei Navalny. Um, this paperback edition is out next month because I just thought that what, what's been happening in Russia is of historical significance. Now, now we, we, we don't know where you know, Navalny and the protest movement that, that he's ignited is is going. I mean, it's a fair bet to think that that Putin will see off this challenge, um, basically squeeze out these kind of street protests. We've seen the the independent journalism in Russia, what's left of it, really kind of rolled up over the last couple of months. So I think Putin will prevail. But I also think that, you know, if we look back in in Post Putin, I think that Navalny has kind of catalyzed something. I mean, he's shown that he's not afraid of Putin. Um, he mocks him, describes him as grandpa, um, a thieving little man in a bunker, all of which is true. Nothing wrong by, with by bunkers. <laughs> Nothing wrong. With, well, we like bunkers, but we don't <laughs> like sort of thieving little little people uh, uh, so much. And and the critique that that basically Putin's Russia is built on lies and on thievery, I think, mm-hmm. resonates with with not everybody in Russia, but with younger people and a, an increasing sort of section of the population. So something has to give, but whether it gives in six months, in one year, in five years, 10 years, we don't know. But my, my sense is that when, when the end comes, it will be a bit like the sort of Soviet Union in the, the perestroika era and the Gorbachev era, the late 80s, early 90s, where suddenly, you know, the dam will burst. And mm. what I'm hoping is I'm still there 
uh, you know, still alive to because that, that that's a great moment for a writer, a journalist, a historian. There are lots of leaks. I really, 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 Andrew, want to get my hands on the Donald Trump file. Although I suspect I will need <laughs> several large vans to take it away from the Libyanka <laughs> KGB headquarters, and then 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 you know I'm going to stay up for a week and just go through it furiously until I find out precisely what what's been going on. When that dam breaks, you'll see a lot of black smoke coming out of the roof of the Libyanka. I'm <laughs> guaranteed. And it won't be for a new pope. Uh, no, uh, you're probably right. Ukraine uh, is seeking to join NATO. How, how's that going to affect uh, Putin's thinking on Ukraine and the Crimea, whether or not it's on football shirts? Um, I, I mean, I think I think Ukraine won't really be allowed to 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 join NATO for various reasons. I mean, I mean, one is is that this would would be a kind of bomb as far as Russia is concerned, um, uh, and I'm sure would precipitate further conflict. But but two, because Ukraine is just deeply um, corrupt place um run by well by government but also by a sort of cabal of shadow oligarchs who exert tremendous power over the judiciary over the economy over pretty much everything and and just lastly the other thing to say on ukraine is that it's central to the sort of putin project putin you know sees russia as a great power um great powers have areas of influence they have colonies Hmm. i mean putin's view of ukraine is that he thinks it's sub-sovereign doesn't think it's a real country he's grabbed a chunk of it in crimea um and sooner or later i think we'll formalize um Russian ownership of, of of Donetsk and Luhansk, the two eastern bits that have been at war with Kiev for the last seven years, and essentially it was it was it was Ukraine's attempts to integrate into the West that that led to all of the the dire events of 2014. So it's going to be a flashpoint in European politics, but. Ukraine's a great country. Um, I, I like it. Even even before 2014, whenever I visited, it, it felt freer, um, sunnier, more optimistic than than, than 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 Russia, which is also a great country, but with a terrible, terrible, um, thuggish leadership. So I would just say, Slava Ukraina, go Ukraine, glory to Ukraine. I think that's embroidered on the shirt as well, isn't it? Or well, that was what you that was it, what. Uh, yeah, it is. It, it, they 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 wouldn't allow um, glory to the heroes um, because that had slightly sort of U- Ukraine far right associations. But Slava Ukraina, glory to yeah. Ukraine. They're, they're playing with that on their backs. Just finally, then as well, uh, the the big election that's coming up in in Europe this year is the German Bundestag election. And there are already reports that Putin's getting involved in targeting the Green Party. Why is why is uh, Putin so uh, intent on the Greens not winning or having serious inroads into the German Bundestag? But because the Greens have got uh, probably the, the most sort of Russia, you know, Kremlin critical um, foreign policy out there, and and Putin's been extremely successful in in co-opting um, German political parties. I mean, um, covertly funding, I think, the Alliance for Deutschland, the, the far-right party, also strong links with Die Linke, the far-left, um, and the the uh, Laschet, the CDU um, uh, councillor candidate, candidate for chancellor, has also been making noises about, wouldn't it be great if Russia and Germany could get along? I mean, he he's a classic... Putin for Steyr, as, as they say in Germany, a Putin understander. And of course, we have Gerhard Schröder, who's literally on, 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 on the Russian payroll. <laughs> so the, the Greens are promising a different kind of politics, um, more hostile towards Moscow. And of course, the Kremlin is doing everything it can to undermine the Greens. But, but so actually is the sort of German right Far right, uh, you know, right wing papers like like uh, Bildt and so on are also gunning for the Greens. So we have to see um, 
what what happens, but it's certainly it's got quite nasty quite quickly. Mm, get more reason to vote green. Yeah. Finally, before you go, you might have heard about the government's decision to let EU safeguards on our steel industry expire on yesterday's Start Your Week with me and Naomi. We got this message from Patreon backer Alice Merry afterwards, and it's a bit long, but it's very worth hearing. Alice says the following. I happen to have a PhD metallurgist with over 20 years experience in the steel industry on hand, so I get fairly regular updates on the industry. A few basic things should be borne in mind. Steel is not one homogeneous thing. Different grades and types are needed for different applications. This is partly why you hear some know-nothing politician bemoaning the purchase of foreign steel instead of lovely British-made steel. It might have been cheaper, but it might also be that the required sort wasn't made here. Secondly, steel is still in vast use, and things not in themselves made from steel are almost always manufactured using machinery that is made of steel, so we can't afford to do without it, and any cost fluctuations or shortages will get passed on to almost every sector. Lastly, you can't turn a blast furnace down a bit or just make less steel if demand drops. It's on or it's off. And once it's off, it's staying off unless someone spends a lot of money to get it going again. So the government can't let the UK industry wither away and just wring their hands and do nothing. If they don't support it, it goes, at which point we'll be totally reliant on steel brought in from abroad. Not the best situation for global Britain bestriding the world freebootedly. So I thought that was a pretty good explanation and also includes first use ever of the word freebootedly. So add that to your dictionaries. Thank you, Alice. Uh, Listeners and Patreon backers, if you have any experts lying around the house, then do share their insights with the podcast. We'll read out the best and most interesting ones. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, where, as usual, it's time for escape routes. What are the TV, films, music, books and miscellaneous that are taking our panellists' minds away from the nerve-wracking world of politics? Arthur, how about you? Well, a bit predictable. Um, I've been watching Jeremy Clarkson doing his farming show on <laughs> Amazon Prime, which given that I live in the middle of the Cotswolds, surrounded by farms, it that seems a bit unimaginative of me. But actually, what yeah. I thought was really good about it was that it would show the general viewer just how skilled a lot of things that they might think are pretty kind of basic agricultural jobs are. The skill of a shepherd and and her dogs, in this case, of a female shepherd, Uh, getting a flock of sheep into a field, the skill of Clarkson's kind of tractor driver, who's always getting them out of difficulty and is absolute genius with machinery. And uh, yeah, I think we, you know, there are big arguments to be had about trade and free trade and whether we should continue to support our own farmers. But there's a small point about people in fairly unsung professions doing really complicated jobs that we don't often see as highly skilled, but clearly are. Does Clarkson come up out of it? I mean, it's his programme. Does he come out of it quite well? Because he is quite good at sort of showing what he doesn't know generally, isn't he? Well, that that point you just made, exactly. He he's Whilst he's this sort of bloviating, arrogant, um, red-faced man, he does always point out where he has got something wrong and where somebody else has actually done it right and better. And, and that makes him a, a strangely charming person, albeit, you know, in a sort of carapace of, of, of gammon. <laughs> carapace of gammon well three more from them later yasmin how about you what's been your uh, escape route so um i've just started watching season four i think of the handmaid's tale um which Ooh. i binged during lockdown um needless to say that was a riveting but actually quite stressful anxiety producing <laughs> binge um it's just really an intense show and i just remember thinking god i'm really not relaxing while i'm watching this and my shoulders were quite hunched um the whole time but uh channel four is actually forcing me to watch it one episode at a time now so i'm Mm. hoping that will be a more enjoyable um (laughs) viewing experience but it's it's good so far one episode in 
Luke, how about you? What's uh, what's your mental um, quiet space at the moment? I've been reading some really great nonfiction books, uh, a biography of Tom Stoppard by Hermione Lee, a, b- a book on mushrooms by the, the wonderfully named Merlin Sheldrake called Entangled Life. <laughs> um, but but actually my favourite is a book about Neanderthals called Kindred, Neanderthal uh-huh. Life, Love, Death and Art by Rebecca Rag Sykes. And it's, it's, it's completely compelling and fascinating. I mean, Neanderthals died out 40,000 years ago, but they kind of bred with humans. So, mm. so you, Andrew, for example, are part Neanderthal. Um, I very probably, much am. I can feel it. Two uh, percent, uh, maybe three percent. I don't know. But but what what's amazing is some of the new scientific techniques that she lays out. So, for example, you can tell from smoke residues how long Neanderthals stayed in the cave. And interesting conversations about whether Neanderthals did art, whether they buried their dead and had funerary rites, and so on. But but basically, they're not ignoble savages with with huge brows. They are cultured. Um, interesting, intelligent, loving uh, creatures that just got unlucky about forty thousand years ago, but but live on in the shape of all the participants in this podcast. Yeah, the Neanderthals got a bad press, didn't they? They really need rehabilitating. Yeah, yeah. I like it when you. I'm reading a book on mushrooms. Oh, really? What book? Hmm. <laughs> My escape route, because I'm a huge cliche, is Liverpool Narcos on Sky. This fantastic documentary series, exceptionally well made. A big cut above the usual drugs and hooligans thing that you often find um, scattered across the Sky program guide. Liverpool Narcos is a three part series. Episode one is heroin, profoundly depressing. Episode two, ecstasy. I've got to say, it, it, the club scene in Liverpool in the 80s and the 90s. Just such fun, so exciting, and so full of characters. And the final episode on co- episode about cocaine, genuinely terrifying. What makes this different is that it's actually very poignant, and you discover that there are very, very few happy endings for the uh, crooks, scallies, likely lads, and uh, independent chemical entrepreneurs in the uh, in the Liverpool scene in the eighties and nineties. It's a fantastic watch. It's, it's really worth seeing. I'm extremely stylishly put together. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thank you, Arthur Snell. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jasmine Sahan. Thank you. And thanks to our special guest, Luke Harding. Cheers, Andrew. It's been really enjoyable. Thanks for thanks all for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. This time next week, it's the full-time show again. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You get the podcast early, you'll get splendid merchandise, and you'll get access to our live Zooms. Backers, of course, get an honorary salute on the show. And here are some now. So it's many thanks from me to Jan Lawrence, Simon Ward and Michael O'Brien. Best wishes from me to Gavin Gluck, Matthew Usher and Tom Robinson. And finally, best wishes from me to Peter Cubbon, Tim Hughes and M. Cohen. We'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily is produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronevich. An audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker's theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.